Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. And happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, before we get going, we're going to be in Mark 11. We're going to be talking about the temple and all that kind of stuff here in a minute. But let me just say that to uh, all the, the men here, the fathers and, and, and uh, grandfathers and all those watching online. Um, if you think Mother's Day is only about your own mother and not the mother of your children, you're in for a long night on the couch. Um, so be sure to spoil um, your wife and the mother of your children as well today. Um, and if not, I warned you. Um, so it's been an interesting week. Speaking of Mother's Day, I woke up the early this morning and too early and uh, took uh, my wife's demon-possessed puppies out to eat and do their business and I do all that, and, and I look over in the side yard while they're eating, and there was a bunny that, that lives in our neighbor's shrub, and he's got a big, big thick shrub, and, and Carter, our niece, um, named uh, this bunny Coco. There's this brown bunny, and, and um, this morning I woke up, and I looked out, and I thought, I hadn't had my coffee yet. I kind of looked out, and I thought, Coco looks really small. Wait a minute, there's two Cocos. Wait a minute, there's three Cocos. Um, Coco had about five bunnies, and so they're out just bouncing around our, our yard. And I showed the picture to Carter this morning. The first thing she said is, I want one. I said, no. <laughs> um, but I hope you guys have a good Mother's Day, a good Mother's Day weekend. Um, I, I'm a firm believer. I just don't, you know, spend that much money on gifts anymore. I just don't think it's, it's worth it. It's just better to have memories and experiences. Speaking of memory, let me tell you a memory of my own mother. Um, here's the thing about being a preacher's kid. And I, I learned this as a preacher's kid, and I learned when my son was at home. He's off to college now, but he's a soft, just finished up his sophomore year. And uh, what I learned is anything discussed between you and your spouse or on the phone or with people in the house, the preacher's kids will learn. The preacher's kids know what's going on. Uh, they know everything that's going on. I remember one night, and I've always been a light sleeper, and we were living in Wheelersburg, and my mom and dad had a couple over who were having tr marital troubles at the time. And at one point, I was laying there in bed, and I heard the wife get up crying and, 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 and storm out the door, and I think dad went to go check on her, and, and the man goes, Alice Kay, that's my mom, Alice Kay, I just can't help it. The women can't keep their hands off me. To which mom replied, as clear as could be throughout the house, oh, make me want to puke. Um, <laughs> that's my mama. Um, Anyway, so happy Mother's Day to everyone. Let's go to Mark 11, 8 through 18. We'll get there here in a second. We're talking about two things. We kind of, because last weekend, Dad kind of called an audible, and we did the thing for Uganda, you know, last weekend. And so this weekend, he wanted to stay on schedule, so we kind of 
took two sermons that we had planned, because the sermons are planned out uh, right now through the end of August, and, and we kind of combined them. So I've kind of had to mash two of them together. But don't worry, they kind of flow together. And I was done early last night, and as my Mother's Day gift to all of you, you will be out of here early and beat all the Baptists and the Nazarenes to the restaurant. So here we go. The temple. And now, the main text for this is 1 Kings 6-9, through 9, but we're not going to go through all that. I'm just going to cover it. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Here's what happens. King David and is, wants to build a temple for God because here's how he looks at things. You've heard me say this before. David did not see himself as king. He saw God as king, and he, David saw himself as like his first lieutenant. He, he's the leader but not the king. He saw himself as prince. And so David began to feel bad after all he'd gone through that David is living in this palace. But the Ark of the Covenant, which is the representation of the holy presence of God, that thing is sitting in a tent. And so David says it's not right that, you know, the presence of God, the representation of the presence of God, which is the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know what that is, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? If you haven't, what are you doing with your spare time? Quit watching The Bachelor and watch quality filmmaking, okay? And, and so David prays, and he says, I want to build this temple for the Lord. And, and God says, it's a good thing that what you want is a good thing, but you're not the person to do it. You're a warrior. You have blood on your hands. It'll be your son who I choose to succeed you. He will build it. And that ends up being Solomon. But David makes it easy for him. David, before David dies, he gets all the materials for the temple all hauled up, up the hill to Jerusalem. So it's all sitting there. So all Solomon has to do is command people to start to put it together. And they do. And by all estimations of people who saw it, it was the most incredible thing people had ever seen. It was one of the wonders of the world. Huge. Absolutely huge. And gold and silver and marble and just, and just beautiful. And that was the temple. Now, that temple, 400 years later, was destroyed. Israel was disobedient. God allowed a foreign army to come in and destroy all of Israel, including the temple. Gone. See ya. Bye-bye. Now, years later, a group of Israelites who are being held in captivity go back, and then they beg the king, can we rebuild the temple? And he's like, sure. So they rebuild the temple, but they don't have gold. They don't have silver. They don't have fine marble. It's just an ugly, ugly thing. It's, it's a mud temple. It just doesn't look very impressive. And so then years later, a guy named Herod is crowned king of Israel by the Roman Empire. And Herod was a bad dude. But Herod decides to try to win favor with the people by rebuilding the temple just like Solomon had, except even bigger and even brighter. People said that when they were walking to Jerusalem, walking up the mount to Jerusalem, when the sun hit the temple, it was blinding. 
And when they got closer and closer and closer, it was the most impressive thing they had ever seen. And the temple was sectioned off into sections. And I'm not going to go far into this. Don't worry. I'm not going to go into all that stuff. Just know this. It, at one end of the temple was this small room called the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God dwelt as powerfully as anywhere outside of heaven. And only one person was allowed to enter that room, and then only once a year on Yom Kippur. The chief priest could enter that place once a year. And because they considered it so holy, and that God's presence was so holy, what they would do is they would actually tie a rope to the chief priest's ankle with a little bell. And so when he walked in, if he had a sinful thought, they thought God would strike him dead. And if they did, the bell would stop ringing. The, the rope would go limp, and they'd just haul him out and send somebody else in. By the way, how would you like to have been that second person? And so this is how seriously they took this. Then outside of the Holy of Holies was the place for the priests. The priests who ran the temple, that's where they would go and worship. Then outside of that was another section where Jewish males would go and they would worship. Outside of that was a section for Jewish women and children. And then outside of that was a section where non-Jews could come and worship and offer sacrifices. That's the temple. Now, I want to ask you this. Why did God want the temple? Have you ever thought about that? Why? We don't have a temple today. It's not a Christian temple somewhere. There are a lot of Pentecostal churches that name themselves Christian temples, but they're not a temple. We're not gathering up, you know, cows and, and birds and all that kind of stuff and sacrificing them to God. We're not doing any of that. We don't have sections where, where people can go. Here at this church building, here in this drywall cathedral, if you want to sit up front, you get here early. If you want to sit in the back so you can get out early, you get here early. I've noticed the middle is what, you know, comes later. There are those who want to see and be close and be seen, and there are those who want to escape as quickly as possible. We don't have that anymore. So what was God doing? Because before the temple, you had the tabernacle. You had this tent, and we used to have, for those of you who've been long enough, we had a mock-up of the tabernacle out here at one time. It was a big tent. It also had a holy of holies. The priests would go get it, and they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd carry it transport it. It was like a mobile home. And before that, you had God showing up sometimes in unexpected times and unexpected places throughout the Old Testament. What's, what's this all about? If God wanted a temple, why don't we still have a temple? And if he wanted a temple, what was the purpose of wanting it in the first place? Do you know where the first temple was? 
the Garden of Eden. You think about what a temple is, what its purpose is, and then you think about the Garden of Eden. The purpose of the temple was so that all people, all nations, could come and be with God and worship God, sacrifice to God, and be with the other people of God. What was the purpose of the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden was not just to be for Adam and Eve. It was very clear. He tells Adam and Eve, go forward and multiply. I'm pretty sure it worked the same then as it does now. They were supposed to have kids and grandkids and so forth and so on. And, and, you know, I don't know what God's plan was after that. He doesn't tell us. Maybe he raised up spouses for the other guy. I don't know. I hope it wasn't brothers and sisters. That's kind of weird. I remember when I was a kid, my mom grew up in Grayson, Kentucky, and every summer she would take us to spend a couple weeks with our maternal grandparents in Grayson. And I loved it because they spoiled us rotten. Drove my mom crazy because she never spoiled her, but they, she spoiled us. You want popcorn for breakfast, chocolate cake? Great. Want to watch HBO all day and eat popcorn and chocolate cake? Great. And we were like, Grandma's awesome. And so we would go. The only time I was really disturbed is one time we were driving through town. My step-grandfather, Papaw Dewey, was driving. My grandma was sitting in the passenger seat. I was sitting in the back. She's driving through Grayson. Oh, that's your cousin such and such. Ten minutes later, oh, that's your cousin such and such. Two minutes later, that's your cousin such and such. Folks, Grayson ain't that big. I was starting to wonder, is this gene pool have a filter? But I don't know what God's plan was, but God's, you know, how he was going to pull that off. I have no idea. But I do know this, that Garden of Eden was meant for all humankind. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, that's where we would all be. And we would all be in the presence of God. And we would be worshiping God. And we would be all together without sin. The temple and the tabernacle pointed to that. This is a place where you all come together. You come together as one. You worship the one true God. And his presence is there. That's what it all pointed to. That's what the temple is about. The people of God, in the presence of God, worshiping the one true God. That's what the temple was about, the tabernacle was about, the Garden of Eden was about. It's all pointing back to that. Now, unfortunately, in church history, it's not just in church history, it's in history, period. We have decided that we need to try to recreate that in some way. If we can't recreate it spiritually, we'll recreate it architecturally and aesthetically. That's what we'll do. Early on, when the Catholic Church finally was given permission by the Roman emperor to exist without persecution, one of the first things they did is they started building buildings. Before that, they met in homes. The church met in homes. 
You go to somebody's home. Usually it was a wealthy person because they'd have a bigger home. And you would go and you would sit and you would all eat dinner together or supper as my father calls it. And you would all eat together. That would be your communion. And then one of the elders would teach you from Scripture. And you'd sing hymns. And you'd go home. And they did this in homes. Usually they were commanded to do it at least once a week. But most of them did it every night. And that was church. But then when the, when the church became an official government entity and was no longer being persecuted, they said, yeah, but it just doesn't feel holy. It doesn't feel like the Garden of Eden. It doesn't feel like the temple. It doesn't feel like the tabernacle. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. We don't have... So what they started to do was try to build these grand buildings to try to make you feel holy by walking in. Just by walking in, you feel awestruck and holy. So you've got like huge plate glass windows. You've got painted ceilings. And it's beautiful. It is gorgeous. And then you, you get, you know, all kinds of stuff. You get, you know, the priest is, is, is elevated in a lot of churches, early churches, like the pulpit wouldn't be right here. It would be like up where that screen is, that high. It'd be like this winding staircase to get up there. So the priest is looking down at you like they, like they viewed God was looking down on them. And that's what they do. When the Orthodox Church broke off from the, from the church, and then you had the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church, they took it even a step further. You ever been to an Orthodox service? I had no idea what's going on, but it smells great because they swish that incense around, right? They go marching up and down the aisles with the incense. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if you got B.O., it smells really good in there. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to recreate a sense of the holy, a sense of the temple, a sense of the tabernacle, a sense of God's presence. And I understand why they do it. Problem is, it doesn't work. I don't know if you followed what's been going on with Orthodox Church, Catholic Church, so forth. It ain't good. Numbers are way down. It's a disaster. Because, on the one hand, God wanted a temple. On the other hand, we no longer have a temple. If God still wanted a temple, excuse me, he'd have a temple. So what's going on? And it's not just that I'm picking on the Catholics and the Orthodox. It's, it's not. It's not. I understand where they're coming from. I disagree, but I understand where they're coming from. I see what logical sense it makes. But let's take it when we had the temple. The temple. Temple of Solomon. Or as the Israelis called it, the Jewish people called it in the first century, the time of Jesus, the great temple. The pure temple. Solomon builds it. Solomon dedicates it to God. And then... 
despite the fact that Solomon is leader over Israel, that he has peace, that he has extreme wealth, and that he has this beautiful temple with the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Despite all that, Solomon, at the end of the day, is a failure. He's a failure. He commits the one sin that even his father David never committed. He worshipped false gods. David never did that. For all of David's sins and problems, David never, ever worshipped anyone but the one true God. Solomon did. And think about that. Solomon is, God gives him all the wisdom. Solomon is the wisest person who ever lived up to the time of Jesus. The wisest. Given discernment beyond anyone else. And everything you could ask for. And he fails. And he fails because he does inherit the one sinful trait that David had in multitudes, which is Solomon like the women. And he had a lot of them. And he had some wives and some concubines who worshipped false gods. And they basically tempted him by saying, if you want me, you've got to worship my family's gods. And Solomon, despite the fact that he has been given wisdom from heaven, looks at this hot girl, looks at this little figurine on her nightstand that represents her God, doesn't look, looks puny compared to the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. Then he looks back at the hot girl. Then he looks at the figurine. Then he looks at the hot girl. And at some point after looking at the hot girl enough, he's like, okay. And he gives in. Not even the temple, all its beauty, all its everything, just everything, just amazing, couldn't save Solomon. Wisdom from heaven and the temple couldn't save Solomon from failure. And that's why I picked a rather strange passage for this. Mark 11, 8 through 18. Now let me set it up because I don't want to go through the whole chapter. Again, I want to get us out of here in the next 10 minutes or so. I take this little perverse pleasure when I'm driving home and knowing that these people walk in from the other churches and they see all these people from CCC already seated at the restaurants. I just, just a little bit of pleasure for them. So let me set this up. Jesus is with his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to die. That's why he's going there. He's going to die to pay the sacrifice for the sins of all those people who would place their faith in him. Second Corinthians 5.21. That's what's going on, and he knows that. He knows that the people want to make him a king in the Gospel of John. It says that. The people want to make him a king. 
But what they mean by king is a political king, a warrior king. And so here's what Jesus does. He tells his disciples, and the Greek isn't clear. And so he says, go get me this animal. Now, the animal in Greek could either be a baby horse or a little donkey. Now, most scholars believe it's a little donkey because there weren't that many horses in Israel, but donkeys were everywhere. So think it was a donkey. So they go get him this donkey, and he rides it into Jerusalem. Now, that's weird because kings, historically, didn't ride donkeys or baby horses. They rode huge war stallions, big, strong horses. That's what a king did. That's not what Jesus does. And so as he's coming up, the rise to Jerusalem, verse 8, here we go. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. That was a sign of humility and respect. And others spread leafy branches they had out in the fields. That's a sign of kingship. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God. Blessings on the one who came in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming of the kingdom of our ancestor David. Notice that. They don't say the kingdom of God. They say the kingdom of David. That's a tell of what they want. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Now, I want you to pay attention to this next one, because this always bugs people, but there's a reason for it. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. We'll come back to that. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple, now notice that, he's saying that for himself, my temple. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. A couple things there. First thing is this. Jesus is claiming authority over the temple. If you can go and do that, you're claiming authority over the temple. He's saying this is my temple. Which means he's saying, I am God. And this is mine. Now, you know, if you've heard me preach at any time, why he's so ticked off. He's ticked off, not that they're selling animals for sacrifices. That was a convenience. If you were a Jew, you know, coming in from Greece or Rome or Egypt, you didn't want to carry, you know, a cow or a bunch of doves all the way from there. Selling those animals there, that was a, that was a convenience. That was fine. But typically, they sold those outside the temple. 
so it wouldn't make so much ruckus. It would be far away, and anyone, including Gentiles, could come. Where do they put the animals? They put them in the court of Gentiles. Why? Because they're trying to tell the non-Jews, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome in our place of worship. I've had these conversations a couple times in the last 20-odd years where people have come up to me and just say, did you see who was in church today, such and such? Okay. Well, do you know that they did this and that and this and that? So? Dad said this to me when I was a kid. And as long as I got breath into me till I go meet with the Lord, this will be the way it is at Christ Community Church. The moment we tell anybody they can't come in here and hear about Jesus, regardless of who they are, we should just lock up our doors and go away. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell the priests and so forth. You don't have the right to run people away from my father's house. What about the fig tree? It's cracked me up over the years. I've had this question many, many times. People get really upset with Jesus about the fig tree. Like Jesus is being mean to a fig tree. I see people get more upset about the fig tree than people getting killed in the Old Testament. Okay, before we get into this, because Jesus is being symbolic. And we'll talk about the symbolism here in a second before we wrap up. But here's what I need you to know, okay? I know what time of year it is because my back porch looks like the Amazon jungle. My wife went to Lowe's. I went into debt. And there are plants everywhere. Folks, your ferns aren't going to heaven. Get used to it. Sorry, plants don't have souls, they can't get saved, you can't be mean to a fig tree. That's one. Two, this is what Jesus is saying. Fig trees, even if they weren't in season and weren't producing figs, they would produce these little nodules all over the tree, especially on the leaves. And what you could do is you could rub off those little nodules, take those little nodules, and you could fill your hand up with them, and it would be like having a handful of sunflower seeds. And they were like a healthy snack. They were nutritious. And so you could go up to the fig tree, you could find these little nodules, get them down, eat them. And so if, out of season, there are none of those nodules, what that means is the tree may look healthy from the outside, but it's diseased on the inside. Do you see where I'm going with this? He's saying the temple may look beautiful, gorgeous, gold and marble and silver, but on the inside, it's diseased and rotten. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? Oh, it was a hub of activity. Hundreds of thousands of people would come to the temple every year, especially around the high Jewish holidays. The historian Josephus says that in one year, at one day in one year at the temple, they sacrificed 250,000 animals. 
It was packed. There was all kinds of activity going on, but they were practicing prejudice. The leadership was practicing jealousy. It wasn't really a temple. I've been in churches. I've been in churches from Hawaii to D.C., from San Antonio to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I've walked into churches, some healthy, some big but not healthy, some small but healthy. And sometimes I'll pick up a bullet and I'll look, and there are like 50 different programs going on. We have our single ministry. We have our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our elderly ministry, our shut-in ministry. We have our crochet ministry. We have our book clubs. We have our on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And then you ask somebody to tell them what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and they go, uh. Activity does not inter equal spiritual maturity. God, what Jesus was doing with the fig tree is saying that's the temple. And he curses it just as he curses the temple. And by 70 AD, the temple was gone. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see one little piece of it. They call it the Wailing Wall. That's it. All the rest of it, history. They didn't see what the temple represented or who it represented. It represented Jesus Christ, and it represented what we all truly want if we know it or not. What we have all wanted ever since Adam and Eve sinned is to be back in paradise in the very presence of God, because only that will make us whole, complete, peaceful, joyful. Only that will do it. Nothing else will. You can spend all your time chasing fame, money, power, looks, whatever you want. Fame and power, real quick. So, once upon a time when I was a kid, everyone agreed that George Washington was the greatest president in American history. And everybody knew who George Washington was. He was the first president. He led the Continental Army that, to give us our independence. He led the Continental Congress to give us the Constitution. He resigned after two terms, though there were no term limits at that time. He resigned after two terms, prompting the King of England to say, that is the greatest man who ever lived because he could have held on to power forever until he died. And he decided not to do that. He wanted to set a precedent where that didn't happen. This past week, this is what fame and power get you. This past week, a poll was done asking, like, junior high students what they knew about George Washington, what they thought of George Washington. They said he was a president, and two, he was a bigot. And that's all they knew. That's it. Nothing else. That's what fame and power get you after a couple hundred years. But what we want is to be where Adam and Eve were once. What we want is to be in the very presence of God. The problem with that is this. If you've read 
Genesis 3, you know that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and I don't know where the Garden of Eden is. I personally think it was probably brought to heaven, but I can't prove that. I don't know. What we all want and desire in our innermost, the only thing that will ever give us perfect peace and joy and everything is to be back in the garden. But when he kicked Adam and Eve out, he placed a flaming sword going back and forth so that no one could enter. A flaming sword. And the only way to get back into paradise is for someone who could be resurrected to fall on that sword. When Jesus is crucified, there was a thick veil that hung between the holy of holies where only the high priest could go and the rest of the people. When Jesus died, what happened to that veil? Ripped in two. You know what happened to that moment? You know what God is saying? Symbolically, just like with the fig tree, and as he often does symbolically, when he tore that veil, he says, Jesus has fallen on that flaming sword for you. And now the presence of God is here. You don't need a priest. You don't need a sacrifice. You need the sacrifice. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, as I know all the Christian mothers here pray that their children and grandchildren do, you will enter paradise one day in the very presence of God, but only because Jesus Christ fell on that sword for you. That's it. Your mothers have sacrificed a lot but Christ sacrificed everything. Amen? Let's pray and get to the restaurants, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for every mother here on Mother's Day. We thank you especially for the sacrifice of your son. For over and over again how you showed us in the tabernacle and the temple that all points to us wanting, needing to be in your very presence. And that the only way that happens is the sacrifice so the sword is lowered and that when we leave these earthly bodies we come to paradise and to be with you and to be whole once again may everyone here want this may everyone here remind themselves of this of a, every single day to have the strength to fight against what Solomon could not resist and the leaders of the temple could not resist. All the petty sins and temptations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God goes with you. If you're mother, I hope you're going to be spoiled today. Lord willing, I'll see you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.